Pieces of Poetry. These podcasts are going to introduce a few poems by various poets. I think sometimes poetry can be a bit intimidating, as it often seems like you have to have an English degree to digest any of it. And when you read articles or intros about poetry, references fly around to other poems and authors you might not know, or movements and influences you might not have heard of. This is usually before you even get to the actual poem. So although you can always dig deeper into that poem if it interests you, first and foremost, when you do read that poem, what it is to you, it is to you. Maybe it's the rhyme or a turn of phrase, a few images conjured up, or a thought or words that stick with you. That's why this series is called Pieces of Poetry. It's bits and pieces of poetry. Don't worry, that doesn't mean I'll only read a few lines of a poem. I'll read the poem all the way through. It's not going to be an in-depth look at each and every poem. There will be an intro to the poet, reading of one of their poems, and a few thoughts about the poem afterwards. Okay, we're going to start off with T.S. Eliot. In the first lockdown of March 2020, I had this earworm poem I couldn't get rid of. This earworm poem was a love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, known sometimes as Prufrock, presumably because when you say the title a few times, it gets a bit long. Thomas Stearns Eliot was born in St. Louis, Missouri, by the Mississippi River in 1888 into a prominent Christian family. He attended Harvard and Oxford universities, moved to England in 1914, became an English citizen in 1927, and lived there for the rest of his life. He is regarded as one of the most influential poets of the 20th century, and was also a playwright, literary critic, editor, and publisher. I was first introduced to T.S. Eliot by an English teacher of mine in sixth form. The bit of the syllabus we were studying was another poem by T.S. Eliot called The Wasteland, one of his seminal works. The book we were given to study was called The Wasteland and Other Poems. The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock was the first poem in the book and felt like it was tacked onto the front to be an appetiser before this serious stuff started. It was written in 1911 and first published in the June 1915 issue of Poetry, a magazine of modern verse. Its inclusion supported by another poet, Ezra Pound. We didn't spend much time studying the poem, but it really stuck with me. I hadn't read a lot of poetry, and I thought it was the tops. It couldn't be beaten. It was the best poem ever, and that was it. During lockdown, I looked to see if there were any readings on YouTube. I could have looked further afield and maybe seen if there were any podcasts, I guess, but I was sitting down in front of the TV and wanted to cast something on the TV from my phone. There were three readings I found initially, by Anthony Hopkins, Jeremy Irons, and T.S. Eliot himself. It was great to hear the poem again, read in a variety of different ways. I found a version recently by Tom Hiddleston, which I enjoyed, but in common with the Jeremy Irons reading on YouTube, had this annoying background music. The Alan Nientob BBC radio programme of the Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, which I recommend, has Jeremy Irons reading the poem, and thankfully, it doesn't have the background music. My favourite is T.S. Eliot's reading. It's heavy and slow with his drawling voice carrying you along. The poem is essentially about Eliot walking around a city being miserable. I know I'm selling it really well. But he starts to walk around the city and then it spirals off from there. 
It's got this really mesmeric quality. Maybe the poem came to mind during lockdown as he couldn't just go out and walk around the city. This particular piece of poetry is one of those which isn't the shortest. It's a long one and does go on a bit, so stick with it while I try to read it without murdering it. If your mind drifts, that's alright, as a poem is little drifts of thought one way or another. It starts with an epigraph or intro of a verse from Dante's Inferno in Italian. It's from Dante's Eighth Circle of Hell and gives you a bit of a clue as to what you're about to read. Paraphrasing the translation I read online, I think it basically means that as he's in hell and there's no way out, he can speak freely. But if there was a chance of getting out, he would guard his words for fear of his reputation. I like to say if you don't know Italian, that this is a faithful and rather eloquent reading. But it's not. So excuse my bad Italian, and here goes anyway. The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot Se io credessi che a mia risposta fossi A persona che mai tornasse al mondo Questa fiamma staria senza più scosi Ma che occhiori che mai di questo fondo Non torno vivo alcun Si odio il vero Senza tema d'infamia ti rispondo let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats, restless nights in one-night cheap hotels, and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. Streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask what is it. Let us go and make our visit. In the room the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes. The yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes. Licked its tongue into the corners of the evening. Lingered on the pool that stand and drains. Let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, and seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. And indeed there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time, there will be time, to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create, and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me, and time yet for a hundred indecisions, and for a hundred visions and revisions, before the taking of a toast and tea. In the room the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. And indeed there will be time to wonder, do I dare and do I dare? Time to turn back and descend the stair, with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say, how his hair is growing thin. My morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin. My necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin. They will say, but how his arms and legs are thin.
Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions which a minute will reverse. For I have known them all already, known them all. Have known the evenings, mornings, afternoons. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. I know the voices dying with a dying fall. Beneath the music from a farther room. So how should I presume? And I have known the eyes already, known them all. The eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. And when I am formulated, sprawling on a pin. When I am pinned and wriggling on the wall. And how should I begin? To spit out all the buttons of my days and ways. And how should I presume? And I have known the arms already, known them all. Arms that are braceleted and white and bare. But in the lamplight, down with light brown hair. Is it perfume from a dress that makes me so digress? Arms that lie along a table or wrap about a shawl. And should I then presume? And how should I begin? Shall I say I have gone at dusk through narrow streets and watched the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out of windows? I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. In the afternoon the evening sleeps so peacefully, smooth by long fingers, asleep, tired, or it malingers, stretched on the floor here beside you and me. Should I, after tea and cakes and ices, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? But though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head, grown slightly bold, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet, and there is no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and in short, I was afraid. And would it have been worth it, after all, after the cups, the marmalade, the tea, among the porcelain, among some talk of you and me, would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it towards some overwhelming question, to say I am Lazarus come from the dead, come back to tell you all, I shall tell you all. If one settling a pillow by her head should say, That is not what I meant at all. That is not it at all. And would it have been worth it, after all? Would it have been worthwhile, After the sunsets and the dooryards and the sprinkled streets, After the novels, after the teacups, After the skirts that trail along the floor, And this, and so much more, it's impossible to say just what I mean, but as if a magic lantern threw the nerves in patterns on a screen. Would it have been worthwhile if one, settling a pillow or throwing off a shawl, and turning toward the window should say, That is not it at all. That is not what I meant at all. No, I am not Prince Hamlet nor was meant to be. I am an attendant lord, one that will do. To swell a progress, start a scene or two. Advise the prince, no doubt, an easy tool. Deferential, glad to be of use. Politic, cautious and meticulous. Full of high sentence, but a bit obtuse. At times, indeed, almost ridiculous. 
almost at times the fool. I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back when the wind blows the water white and black. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us and we drown. So yeah, pretty cheerful stuff there, particularly at the end. Elliot wrote this poem when he was 22. You think he should lighten up a bit rather than project himself into the future and wonder what life still holds after hitting his peak or failing to hit his peak, what his life has been and what it's like today at this very minute and hour. It's an incredible act of projection. Let's walk through the poem a bit. So what's it all about then? Or should I say, what do I think it's all about? The title is the first thing. Many people have wondered about the naming. Apparently in St. Louis, where Elliot grew up, there was some kind of furniture store which had Proofrock in the name. Then there's the J. Alfred. Maybe he named a poem with two initials, as Elliot himself has two initials. He never expanded much upon the name, saying that only that he got Proofrock from somewhere, but couldn't recall where. The first three lines are the most lauded and quoted, and capture an expansive vista. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. You could see it as an uncomfortable image when he says, it's like a patient etherized on a table, sort of prone and unconscious. The author C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, was not Eliot's biggest fan, and said something like, he wasn't able to see any evening which would suggest a patient etherized upon a table. Still, I like it. It pitches you into an expansive scene in the sky before you are firmly taken back down to the ground as Elliot takes you through wandering the half-deserted streets. The streets, like his thoughts, carry on from one to another to lead you to an overwhelming question, which he addresses to you, the reader. Let us go and make our visit. The poem continues. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. Even though you haven't got very far reading the poem, this throws you off a bit. Michelangelo is a celebrated artist whose art and legacy gets talked about. Will Proofrock get talked about? Does he think that? We hear these two lines again in the poem, so it acts as a chorus or refrain stating how things carry on regardless of how we experience the world or what our cares are. And then the wanderings go from him heading out into the evening to the yellow fog and smoke, the pollutants of an industrial town or city used as a metaphor for a cat. Eliot liked cats. He wrote a collection of poems called Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, which was used as a basis for the musical Cats. The languid behaviour of the cat through the yellow smoke and fog slows down the pace and embellishes the urban scene he's in. This slowing down is built upon to describe time itself in more specific terms, 
in relation to the environment that Elliot lives, and how there will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. The stress on time and observations you make about it suggests perhaps how much it gets wasted, particularly in everyday life. Is it society's expectations of behaviour which he's agonising over, or resigned to? Or does it point to more of an internal struggle of him trying to break free from? The repetition of subsequent time-based scenarios stresses further, as he says, And time yet for a hundred indecisions, and for a hundred visions, and revisions, before the taking of a toast and tea. The theme of momentum without decision and repetitiveness appears here alongside the everyday. Then Michelangelo returns, reminding us that the world doesn't care about Prufrock's condition, and everything still carries on as before. The poem then quickens in pace and becomes more desperate. Do I dare? Do I dare? And the commentary of, they will say, but how his arms and legs are thin. Do I dare disturb the universe? He appears to be simultaneously wondering what people think of him, while speculating what he thinks he has the capability to achieve. Then he muses upon the regularity of his life, measured out my life with coffee spoons. There is an inertia without making an effort to get out and act in some more decisive manner, especially when it comes to his relationships with women, which dominate the poem until the end. Or is it just his relationship with one woman? Who knows? The accompaniment of these concerns about how to approach women is stressed in the next few verses, when he ends each verse with the lines, So how should I presume? And how should I presume? And should I then presume? And how should I begin? His frustration builds up and is compounded with each line. This subtle refrain, slightly mixed up, carries you along without even noticing it, and speeds up the tempo. Then in his resignation of his situation he says, I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. Another metaphor here of the pointlessness he feels and the inertia in which that resides. The way these lines play out in the poem, they have a starkness and separation to them which stand alone. I'm left not wanting to hurry on when I read these lines, such is their impact. Dennis Hopper, playing the photojournalist in Apocalypse Now, quotes these lines near the end of the film, attributing them to Colonel Kurtz, played by the actor Marlon Brando. And Kurt himself recites another T.S. Eliot poem, The Hollow Men, which ends with, This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. These particular lines a lot of people have heard, but probably like me, didn't know where they came from. We've got John Milius and Francis Ford Coppola, the writers of the screenplay of the film, to thank for that. Which one of them was the T.S. Eliot fan, I wonder? That's proof of So he ponders over what he sees as the high point of his life with I've seen the moment of my greatness flicker and thinking that it's all downhill from here. Then he grapples with the question, the answer of his very being and what he means and concludes forcefully, perhaps to who he's with, that is not what I meant at all. That is not it at all. If we could picture those thoughts, what would they be? There's a standalone line a bit after that where he describes as if a magic lantern threw nerves in patterns on a screen.
So maybe it's that. The anguish of how he's misunderstood gives way to how he really is. Not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. I'm an attendant lord, one that will do. And also the listlessness of his state. What should he do, saying, Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? The final verse is a beautiful sadness with a mermaid singing each to each and his resignation leading to till human voices wake us and we drown. So yeah, pretty cheery stuff. Um, the movement T.S. Eliot's poetry was to become was called modernism and this probably marks the start of it. Its followers were trying to break away from more traditional forms of poetry so it was direct and had an anything-goes attitude to subject matter. It's frequently told in the first person, recounting to the reader, I do this and I do that, in a stream of consciousness. It experiments with structure rather than having a timeline of beginning, middle and end. What I especially like about it is it stresses that the reader can make of it what they will. It's yours to interpret rather than unlocking keys into the writer's intended meaning. Anyway, if you like this poem, then you might like a poem called Preludes. It's about Eliot observing and experiencing the city, similarly to the first couple of verses of this poem. He describes an urban evening scene which moves to the morning dawning and waking up with someone, and then the day moves back into the evening over a few more verses. Like the opening lines of Proofrock, He's also got in a bit about the sky when he starts the fourth verse saying his soul stretched tight across the skies that fade behind a city block. It's more neutral in tone than this poem but has lovely observations and if you thought the love song of jail for proof what was a bit long don't worry it's a lot shorter. Another of his poems Rhapsody on a Windy Night follows from proof rock walking out amongst bars in the evening to walk around the street at night. With these three poems, you can spend a whole 24 hours with T.S. Eliot. All of these poems and quite a few more were published in his first collection of poetry called Proof Rock and Other Observations in 1915. Eliot would go on to publish some of the most influential and defining poems of the 20th century with The Wasteland and Four Quartets, many other poems, as well as seven plays and lots of literary criticism. There's even a T.S. Eliot Society you can become a member of. If you go digging, Proofrock certainly has many classical references to explore, starting with Dante and then sprinkled throughout the poem. But I've never really lingered on them or been too bothered about delving into them. It's the tone that captivates and the sway and rhythmicness of the poem and the imagery which I'm left recalling. That striking imagery... The author Stephen King says his compact descriptive language in his book on writing a memoir of the craft. He in particular likes those ragged claws scuttling across the ocean floor, those coffee spoons. There are many snippets of phrases which may rest with you, like those ones, or, and when I am formulated sprawling on a pin, or, to have squeezed the universe into a ball. And my one? Well, which would I choose? Perhaps for me, it's this one most of all. That is not it at all. That is not what I meant at all. Thanks for listening if you got this far. 
And in the next episode, I'll be discussing and reading some of my Angelou's poems. So catch you then. Mm-hmm.